Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Good morning, Calvary. How are we? Man, you guys look good today. Just... No, you do. Why are you laughing? I'm serious. You do look good today. Maybe you're laughing at somebody else. You're like, they don't look good. I don't know. Somebody needs to get their heart right. Hey, so, hey, I'm glad that you're here, whether you're in the room or you're tuning in to us from Pennsylvania or Georgia or Florida or some other part of the world. I'm so glad that you're here and tuned in. I believe that God has something for each and every one of us. We have been in this series for a little while called Shiny Happy People, and we're going to continue on. We're only about halfway through, so um, we have a lot of work yet to do. So I want to talk about some things first before we jump into that, and really it will set us up for what's happening in this passage. And what I want to talk about is sometimes, you know, you see things later in life that you didn't see before. Do you know what I mean? Who knows what I'm talking about? It's like earlier, like later, there you go, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll give you a chance to raise your hand, like I just moved right on. You're like, I do. So sometimes it's like early in life, things are in such a way, and then the older you get, the more you actually see it for what it is. So, of course, I'm going to give a couple references this morning that have nothing to do with the Bible. I just think it's a fitting time to do so. The first one that I learned is, is about Dippin' Dots. Did you know that it's really not the ice cream of the future? Did you know this? It's really not. I know some of you are surprised. You're like, don't ruin my hopes and dreams. It's not. When I was a kid, they're like, this is the, this is the, the ice cream of the future, and I was like, whoa, it is? It's of the future. And then I was told when I was at NASA, this is actually what astronauts eat. I was like, oh, that is amazing. Not necessarily true, but that's amazing. But apparently, it's just cryogenically formed ice cream. That's actually what it is. Doesn't that sound delicious? It just does. <laughs> Some things change over time. It's not really the ice cream of the future. Here's another one. I'm going to just burst a lot of your bubbles on this one. If you're children of the 70s or of the 2000s, you've had a connection point with this. I'm going to share you with you maybe one of the creepiest pictures that I'll ever share from stage. Here you go. Here we go. Now we have uh, Charlie in, in the chocolate factory. What's up with those eyebrows, y'all? I mean, that's weird, is it not? Um, those Oompa Loopas, they got something going on there, and it's creepy. Uh, I just want you to know that Charlie doesn't live in the, tra- in the chocolate factory. You learn this later in life. Like, as a kid, you're like, really? Yeah, the, there, there, is, there is no, like, no golden ticket inside a chocolate bar. I've sampled a lot of chocolate bars in my day. I haven't found one. Not, not a one. It's like everything about this. Some things change over time when you start to, to see things as they really are. Uh, Willy Wonka letting us down. Now, not just generation, like, not just my generation, but several generations we just haven't been told the truth. However, there are everlasting gobstoppers still. So you got that going for you in case, you know, you don't like your teeth. So the last one I have is this, is, uh, is Chuck E. Cheese. Now, who, who grew up going to Chuck E. Cheese? And it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. I remember that as a kid. I'd go in there, and, and you see Chuck E. Cheese, and he would... It's just later in life, you realize, and I went there as an adult, it's like, Chuck E. doesn't live there. What? He doesn't just serve mediocre pizza. I know, it's hard to believe. He doesn't. And as a matter of fact, when we went there the last time, I was really let down because Chucky was like this. It was like he's doing the robot, like from the 80s and breakdancing. It was horrible. And I thought, how in the world as a kid could I be mesmerized thinking that this is real when it's clearly not real? Things change over time as, 
as we live our lives, sometimes we see things differently over time. And we just kind of see those. Of course, there's three just kind of funny examples. And we also have other examples of this too. And, and what we're going to see today in, in the Bible is this. In Matthew 23, we're going to see that Jesus wants the Pharisees to change the way that they're looking at their faith. He's wanting to change their, the way that they're practicing their faith. He is challenging them to convert some things about their faith. I have a hunch. My hunch is this. There's something here for us as well. Because we may just write this off and say, well, that's just another example of the Pharisees being the Pharisees. And, you know, they're the enemies of Jesus. And they're the ones partially responsible for him going to the cross. And we may just write all this off as saying, oh, this is just something that, that is just so common because Jesus was, seemed to always be coming at the Pharisees. But I want you to know this. Yes, the, there is this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in this passage. But as we glean upon passages like this, we not only look at these things from a perspective of that's somebody else from some, some other time, but as the people of God, we should always, when we sit under the preaching of God's word, to say, how does this pertain to me? Just as Jesus is trying to, he's trying to convert the Pharisees, I believe, and my hunch is this, that there's something in us that he wants, us to, con- he wants to be converted to. He wants us as the people of God, or maybe you're not even a person of God. He wants you to first give your, your, your life to him. But those of us who've already done that, I believe there's some aspect of this that he wants to convert in us. There's something that is not of him that he's wanting to make it more like himself. Well, as I've said several weeks now, as we've been progressing on, and now as we jump into verse 16... The interaction is between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a prominent religious group at the time. Not the only one, but they were prominent. There were approximately 11,000 Pharisees throughout that whole area of the world. So so it isn't just an isolated little group of people. They were very influential. And they were influential in a lot of different places. Not just around Jerusalem. There would be pockets of Pharisees throughout. And what's so troubling about this to me is is when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and other people are listening, what's so troubling to me is, I wonder how many people that they have already led astray by what they did. I wonder if this is the reason why that Jesus has this this common word throughout all of these these seven statements and these seven woes. It's it's a a statement of, of conviction and belief and mourning what they've done. And I just wonder how many people have been corrupted by what they did. And I want us to get it right because I want us to have a positive effect on other people. So there may be some things in us that needs to still be converted and surrender to Christ. So let's go into verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is, greater, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the, temp, by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it, and by the one who dwells on it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne, and by the one who sits on it. 
I've studied this passage for several weeks, and about every other time I read this, it sounds like a tongue twister. Who could be honest and say it sounds like a tongue twister? Thank you. I'm not the only one. I've been looking at this for weeks, and, and, and again, every other time or so that I read it, I'm like, okay, it just it seems just like a bunch of words. and it just, it just seems confusing. And then it dawned on me, that's the point. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were intentionally making oaths or allowing people to make oaths that didn't matter. They were allowed, the, the, the Pharisees were making these oaths and allowing people to make these oaths, and these oaths weren't substantial. They were just changing things around to even make it more confusing. And so what Jesus says, and just to clarify all of that confusion to them and to us, he says, when you make an oath, understand you're making an oath to God. So we need to be careful and when we give an oath, or when we even make an oath, and when we make an oath, we need to follow through with the oath that we've made. Because what they were trying to do, the Pharisees, they were trying to, to trip up, or excuse me, they were trying to allow other people to do what they wanted, and yet what they were doing is actually tripping up the truth on when they were supposed to follow through with an oath or a pledge or a promise that they've made. I'll back up into the beginning of the, of the passage. Jesus, again, he calls them blind guides. And you may wonder, why is it that there's this repetitive theme of blind guides? I want to drill down into this a little bit further. And one reference I want to give you is this. There's actually a mention earlier in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is having this interaction with the Pharisees and there's another crowd there and this is what Jesus says about the Pharisees to other people. He says, leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So earlier, days earlier, perhaps months earlier, Jesus had said to a crowd who most likely was mesmerized at the, the outward appearance of the Pharisees. And then Jesus says, leave them, they're blind guides. If you follow them, they're essentially going to lead you into a pit. They're going to lead you not to the place where you want to go, so don't follow them anymore. Throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were considered to be light to people in the darkness. So when Jesus would call them blind guides... They thought that they had the Old Testament mastered. They thought that their interpretation was right. They were the ones who were untouchable with other people. They are the ones who love to stand on the street and they love to look good and they love to keep people wanting more from them, although they themselves would not help anyone to grow in their faith. And yet they were the ones supposed to be guides and light for people in the darkness. Isaiah 42, 6 through 7 says this. I'll give you a few different references, Old and New Testament, speaking into this. As to why it's important that Jesus used the word blind guides. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. This is Isaiah 42, verse 6. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Again, Isaiah 49, verse 6 this time. 
This is also echoed in Acts 13, 47. It says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jumping ahead into the New Testament, into Acts 26, verse 23. Notice the way that Paul defends his faith. He said, that is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day so that I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would, happen, would say would happen. That Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Romans 2, 17 through 24. Paul writes again this to a different audience. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among you Gentiles because of you. Old and New Testament. The people of God were to be light to the darkness. What began with the Jews as being the people of God at the time is now continued to Christians today. We are to be a light for those who are not in the faith. We are to still be a light. So what began in the Old Testament with the Jews continued today. So it, it pushes... It pushes us into a place of understanding that now this isn't just about the Pharisees. Now there's something in us that, that also rings true. That we are to be light into the darkness. That this, this bringing of good news, or the, the word that we use as evangelism, of sharing the good news with other people, those who are lost, that isn't just for another set of people from a distant time in the past. Instead, it is still a relevant thing for us today. So when we talk about and we share the vision that we are for this city, we're about being for the city and for the nations and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through things that we say, lives that we live, and also things that we do. Going to the ends of the earth. Back into our passage, verse 16. Jesus said, You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You see, people still swear to inanimate objects. I remember hearing several times people swearing on their mother's grave. Who's heard that? I swear on my mother's grave. People today still swear on inanimate objects. They, they cross their fingers, right? And then there's something about sticking something in their eye. Like, I don't even know where that came from. 
Is that, is that not the weirdest thing? And then as a kid, you're just like, cross your fingers. I'm not going to say the next thing. You know, stick a, stick a needle in your eye. I'm like, really? Like, that's what it takes? Like, I'm, I'm going to promise something, and you know that I'm real whenever I do that, and I cross my fingers and my toes, but you just have to trust they're crossed because i got shoes on. Like, that's just the weirdest thing. But we still do this. We swear to inanimate objects, and that's what they're doing. The Pharisees are missing the fact that now they're swearing to inanimate objects and they're, they're changing the objects what could be swore to. What Jesus is saying is, when you swear at all, you're actually swearing to me because he is the God of the altar, he's the God of the gold, he's the God, of, he's the God to be worshipped, period. So how were they doing this specifically? Specifically, they did four different things. They switched the greater for the lesser. They switch the greater for the lesser. In verse 16 and 17, Woe to you blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold on the temple, he's bound by the oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. They were placing a higher value on the objects of worship and not the presence of God. Second thing, it was verbal semantics. They were placing a greater importance on the words that were said instead of the intention to fulfill the promise. So they were just empty words. So the reason why they were allowing different things to be sworn upon is because if we just change the things that are being sworn upon, then part of those verbal semantics would mean that now it's just about words and it's actually not about the one you're actually making this oath to, ultimately. Third thing, they were creating loopholes. It was a system where someone could make a promise and be okay with breaking the promise. It was a system built upon this. So they were creating loopholes. A modern analogy may be, maybe somebody goes to Las Vegas. You know, not the place is known as making the best and wisest life decisions, you know, but you go to Las Vegas. Maybe it's late at night and perhaps it being in Las Vegas, you know, what happens stays there, and nobody talks about what happens there, but I'm just going to set up a theoretical situation. Somebody goes to Las Vegas, and it's late at night in Las Vegas, and maybe they've, they've had way too much to drink. And then on this given night, they see, you know, they have a twinkle in their eye, and they look over, and they see somebody else has a twinkle in their eye. It's because they're both drunk, but it looks like and feels like love when you've had that much to drink, right? So now it's 1 o'clock in the morning. And, and they go find Elvis, because that's what you do when you're in Vegas, apparently. You go find Elvis because you're going to get married, because they have that little twinkle in their eye. Probably too many martinis or something, but whatever. Then they wake up the next day. They have an incredible headache. They wonder what happened. And then also have this faint memory that they got married the night before. Well, in America, we have this thing called an annulment of a marriage that is a perfect loophole for a situation like that. I can make this horrible decision and wake up the next day and be like, no, it's not, it was never a marriage. So that means it was never a divorce because it was just an annulment. That's a, that's a loophole. 
That's a loophole. That's something within our social system that allows someone to get divorced as a loophole. And the last thing they were doing is this. They were twisting the truth. It was, they had twisted the truth. Because the Pharisees had ulterior motives. Some theologians believe that the reason why they were twisting the things around and they were talking about gold and talking about the altar is because they were greedy, because they wanted money. And they thought, oh, this is a great opportunity for them to trick people into saying to make these oaths with gold and that they would maybe take some of those things because they had that money or that gold on their mind. I'm not really sure. I'm not going to speak into that definitively. What I can tell you definitively is this. John 8:44 speaks into them. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, and there is no truth in him. When he speaks, or excuse me, when he, lie, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is who the Pharisees are following. This is the, the driver of their ulterior motive. They're not wanting to honor God. Their father is the devil. See, Pharisees were leaving God out of their priorities, and they were bending the truth to their preferences. Sounds convenient, doesn't it? They were leaving God out of their priorities, and they were bending the truth to their preferences. Still not that uncommon today. However, you may look at this passage and say, okay, there's a, there's a lot of swearing, there's a lot of altars, I don't have any gold, what does this have to do with me? How is this relevant to my life? Good question. My answer would be this. People make commitments all the time and break them. They make commitments all the time and break them. Think of athletes who sign you know, a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract, and you sign the contract, and the, the team that, who, who basically writes the contract, and they agree to it, say, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And then a couple of years into a contract, an athlete starts taking performance-enhancing drugs, and all of a sudden, contract is void. Then, if you root for that team, your heart's broken because that's who you wanted to be on your team. And they said that they pledged, and yes, I'm going to sign this contract. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to do these things. And then there's a breach of contract, all because they took performance-enhancing drugs. Politicians, another great example of this, right? They always tell the truth, don't they? This time of year, aren't we just thankful for all the political ads? I'm just so thankful, said no one ever. We just know that they just tell us right now, oh, that sounds really good. I need to remember them on, you know, on the day to vote. And it's like, oh, and then you hear another one, you're like, ooh, that sounds good. Now I don't know who to vote for. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get caught up in that. And then once the person gets voted in, you're like, you're not doing the thing you said you were going to do. And you went all over the state, you went all over the country and saying you were going to do it. What happened? What happened? But it also happens with just people like us. Because people get married and people get divorced. Because people, they start jobs and they're committed to the job, but then something changes, the wind blows the wrong direction, and then they just quit a job without cause. Devastating the employer. People intentionally default on loans 
They sign the pledge and promise, yes, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, with no intent of ever paying it off. People, they, we have long-term committed friendships, and, you know, we say things like, I'll always be here for you. You know, we're, we're friends. We've been friends for a long time. We're, we're th- friends through thick and thin, and then the preference, something changes, the preference in us changes, and then all of a sudden, we just walk away from that friendship we've had for 25 years, 20 years, 15 years, 30 years. Like, how can we do this? Because we're people who still have promises that are bound upon our preferences. Because we're people who still have our promises linked to preferences. And as our preferences change, we break our promises. And what's so disturbing to me is this. There's no different with somebody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus or somebody who is of the world and does the exact same thing. And yet, Christians, we should be people who can honestly say, if I said I will do it, I will do it. Or if I said that I will be there, I will be there. If I said that I will show up, I will show up. And if I don't follow through on what I committed that I would do, then you'll hear it from me first. Because we of people, of the people of God, should be those who have the utmost integrity on planet earth. That should be a mainstay of who we are. There should be nothing in a follower of Jesus that looks like the world in this regard. There should not be promises that are connected to our preferences. We should not be people who say, well, well, you know what, I'll do it if, if that's what I really want to do. I'll do it. I know I said that I'll do it, but I just don't know that I'm going to feel like it when the time comes. I'll do it, but I just don't know that I'm ready to make that commitment. Then don't make the commitment. Then don't make the commitment. We should never be the type of people who say, well, I'll show up if it fits my best interest at that time. I'll show up unless something better comes along. Why is this true? Because Christians keep their promises. Because when a follower of Jesus Christ makes a promise, it's not based upon a preference. It's based upon the person of Jesus Christ and a heavenly Father who loves us and the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us. That's why. That Christians keep their promises. That if we say we're going to do something, we follow through with it. We shouldn't be looking for different ways of, of creating loopholes to get out of it or twisting the truth changing our words to get what we want at the time. Instead, we should be people who are about the Word of God, living a life committed to God, and keep our promises because we are the people of God. And yet Jesus taught us that we shouldn't make oaths or promises just to prove our trustworthiness. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 
starting in verse 33. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Age seems to do that just fine for most of us. Verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You may look at this and say, well, pastor, these two things are at odds with one another. They're actually not. And I want to help it make sense. In Matthew 5, Jesus is saying that we we should not have to make oaths just to prove that we're telling the truth. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is talking about how binding those oaths are when we do. He's saying we shouldn't have to to go to great lengths just to prove our trustworthiness. They should just see the character that we have and just say they're a person of character. They're honest. They're people of integrity. They're Christians. They're going to do it. They're going to follow through. If it's within their power to follow through, they will follow through. And if not, they'll let me know that they can't follow through because that's what integrity does. And church, this isn't just relevant for us outside these walls. It's also the commitments we make within these walls. When we tell other people, hey, I'll serve, I'll show up, I'm going to be there. I'm here for you. Yes, I'll meet you for coffee. Yes, let's have lunch. Yes, I'm, I'll, I'll text you. Yes, I'll call you. I want to hold you accountable. We should be those people who have integrity. When we say we're going to do something, we follow through. And if we can't follow through, they should hear it from us first. Jesus is not teaching a new principle. People have always made vows. God himself allows for many lawful oaths. And I could just drown you in passages about that. But I want to share with you one more passage just to help you to understand how immense and powerful it is that God keeps his word. God declared this through a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. This promise would be fulfilled approximately 600 years later in Jesus. But this is what God declared through Jeremiah. The time is coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with those in the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor and a man... A man, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 600 years later, this would be fulfilled. And the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. God is a promise keeper. What Jeremiah was pointing to was the future date when the Messiah, when Jesus Christ would come. 
and how there would be a, a new and better covenant than the ones in the Old Testament. Not a covenant rooted in, in some sort of tribe that you were birthed into or a people group that, or an ethnicity, but instead that was available because the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles, which means that the, that the arms of God were wide open, that anyone was welcome to come in. And what Jesus did and the promise that was made through Jeremiah proves to us that every time that someone gives their life to Jesus, that Jesus is a promise keeper over and over and over again. Anytime that you've seen a spiritual change in your life, your life has verified that God is a promise keeper. Anytime that you've sat back in awe of what God has done in someone else's life and you've said, oh my goodness, look at how they're changing. That is evidence that God is a promise keeper. God is not asking you to do something that he's not already doing. He's not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees would ask people to do things and they themselves would not do it. God is not like that. God himself is a promise keeper and he wants us to be people who keep our promises. Well, I think maybe the, the, the most notorious person who made an oath to God and broke his promise might be Peter. The most notorious. He was with Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner core. The three people that Jesus put so much time and energy into. He himself saying, well, Lord, I'm never going to leave you. And Jesus says, oh, you're going to leave me. You're going to deny me. And he says, oh, I'll never do that. This is how that story goes. Matthew 26, starting in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was a broken man. You may look at that and say, yeah, that's a familiar story. I've heard that one before. I share that story because although Peter was perhaps the most notorious of people who were breaking their promise or oath to God, If you were to fast forward in his life, you see little snapshots of where he is just a couple decades later from the original passage. I'm going to jump ahead to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. If you have your Bible, I'd love it if you'd open it. Let's look at it together. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And the reason why we we go through this is because this man, 
you see that he is the most notorious of liars. And yet, God continued to work in his life. And look what he says. This is just a snapshot, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is now a message about a man who's been changed. About a man that God didn't give up on, although in, in a crisis moment that he turned his back on God, disowning, saying he didn't even know him, vowing and pledging that he didn't even know him. When just moments later Jesus would go to the cross and you would think that, his, that the disciples would be there and they would be protesting, but they weren't. They were silent. And yet God continued to work in Peter's life. Let me encourage you. You may have broken some promises, but God's going to continue working in your life. He's not through with you. You may have fallen short on some promises, some things that you said that you were going to do and you didn't do, and it may have happened 20 years ago. I want you to know that the gospel is still moving. If you're listening to me right now, God is moving. If there's anything happening inside you right now, God is moving. God is revealing something to you about himself, and he wants to continue to work in you. He wants to continue to work in you. If God can work in, in one of the most notorious liars of all time, God can work in your life too. Would you stand with me? I stand in awe of the fact that God is faithful even when I'm unfaithful. I stand in awe that, that there's a God in heaven who pursues my heart. Continually. I stand in awe that, that God loves me so much. And that he loves you so much. That although we have broken promise after promise after promise, even with all of the breaking of those promises, Jesus was still willing to go to the cross for you and I. That when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't some game. It was reality. His mother was there. His family was there. His friends were there. They saw it. They didn't understand it, but they saw it. And to think that Jesus would die for people who just won't keep their word. And for all the other sins of the world. I don't know where this lands with you. I don't know what your heart is full of today. I don't know if there's a, a promise that you made that, 
you're not following through on. And perhaps you, what you need to do is, is today, you just need to confess that before God. Maybe what you need to confess to God is say, God, I should have never made the promise to begin with. And now I feel stuck. And maybe for you, maybe what, what needs to happen is a movement in your heart because someone made you a promise. And they didn't follow through on that promise. And now you feel stuck. You feel hurt. There's a God who loves you. Who wants to hear from you. And he wants you to speak to him. As we respond with this time of coming to the altar. Do whatever it is the Lord is stirring you to do. Lord Jesus, we thank you again. We thank you for loving us first and loving us always. God, the, the room is full of, a peop, of, of people who have broken their promises. Break us. Break us of anything that's not of you. Break us of, of all of those, those things that bind us. God, break us of those things. And God, after you take those things away, allow us, God, by your power to be the light to the lost and lonely and hurting. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.